Bible or a Bible app, you can find your way over to Daniel chapter 4, beginning Daniel 4 this evening. The world's largest tree is Sherman, General Sherman. Mr. Sherman was in the news yesterday when, for the second time this year, the National Park Service had to cancel plans to start a controlled burn in the vicinity around the famous General Sherman tree in an effort to clear overgrowth and make room for the next generation of plant life. The plan was for the 400 or so acre fire to chew through most of the fuel bed and knock down dead trees and snags. One official said this, We're giving a prescription the way a doctor gives a prescription of medication. We're trying to work within the prescription to get the desired outcomes and effects. But uh, when they did a test fire, it wasn't burning fast enough. The stuff was too moist, so they had to abandon it and hope that there's not a wildfire. But anyway, (laughs) in our text tonight, Nebuchadnezzar is going to have a dream in which he sees the largest tree in all the world. Though it's healthy and strong, spreading and bearing fruit, it is suddenly condemned by heaven, and the prescription is that it be hewn down and left as a battered stump for seven years. Nebuchadnezzar would come to find out that this was a prophecy concerning himself. It was a warning from heaven of the judgment that was coming on him as an individual. And once the story had all unfolded, he finally relented and became a believer in the God of heaven. And then, right before he leaves the pages of Scripture, he would put his testimony into an epistle that he sent all over his kingdom, proclaiming the greatness of Jehovah. It's a great, great little passage here. Now, some Bible commentators suggest that Nebuchadnezzar didn't really have a conversion experience, that he simply acknowledged the power of Daniel's God alongside the many gods of Babylon. But I think there's more than enough reason to assume that we're going to see this guy in heaven. I, for one, think we're going to. For one thing, if there's a debate, and you can kind of look in these texts and say, hey, is he a believer? Is he not a believer? Seems like he is. And uh, why not love, believe all things, right? And, and uh, assume that he really did have a conversion experience based on what we see here. But uh, think about this. We can note a remarkable progression in his attitude toward the God of the Bible, It's clear the God of Daniel, the God of the Hebrews, was on the hunt for Nebuchadnezzar. And in chapter 2, he said what to Daniel? He said, yeah, your God knows some secrets. That's pretty neat. Your God revealed a secret to you. And then in chapter 3, he says, there's no other God who can deliver like the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's going quite a bit farther. But by the end of chapter 4, he's going to say this, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice. And in this chapter, he praises the Lord as king above all kings, accomplishing his will throughout all generations. And so there's quite a progression uh, in the things he's saying about the God we know and serve. Consider as well that clearly Daniel, the writer, and the Holy Spirit, obviously by extension, considered this epistle, this sermon, this gospel tract that he wrote to be genuine and worthy of rebroadcast here in the book. So Nebuchadnezzar is going to write this gospel tract, send it out to his whole kingdom, and the Holy Spirit taps on Daniel's shoulder, as it were, and say, hey, put this into your book so it can be rebroadcast, not just through the Babylonian Empire, but throughout the rest of human history. And so I don't see why we can't see the uh, mad king of Babylon becoming a true believer. I look forward to seeing him in eternity. 
Now, we're not going to have time to get through the whole chapter this evening. We'll take it in a couple of parts. But tonight, as Nebuchadnezzar begins his epistle, I'd like us to consider the condition of a person who needs to be converted, the change that God brings to their lives, and the character of the man or woman who believes in God and serves him. We begin in verse 1. No longer Daniel speaking, but this is a message that Nebuchadnezzar wrote to his people, wrote to his empire. It's him narrating. He says, Nebuchadnezzar the king... To all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. The Babylonian Empire, or they call it the Neo-Babylonian Empire, reached its height under Nebuchadnezzar. I can only imagine the anxiety you might have felt being, say, an Egyptian down in the city of Memphis and seeing a palace horse from Babylon riding into town with an official message from the man who had conquered your country, probably laid waste to your city. There's some mail you just don't really want to open based solely on the return address, right? The IRS comes to mind. If, if it's not, you know, right at, if you, if you don't have like a return coming to you and you get a letter from the IRS, you're probably not real excited about opening that. But there you are. You're living your life, you're doing your work, and all of a sudden this delegation from the Babylonian palace comes and there's a herald. And he says, get everybody together. We've got a message from Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, I imagine that that is a stressful day for everybody. And the herald says, come hear the message from the king. His opening line, peace be multiplied to you. What a relief. And what a surprise. I, I would think that would be a surprise if you were a subject in the far reaches of the Babylonian Empire. While this was a common greeting in the day and age, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't the kind of guy who needed to be polite in his communication. Not exactly the crown, the British people, right? Where they, everything has to be all decorum and all politeness and you know all the right thing. Nebuchadnezzar is the kind of guy that pulled people apart in public for fun, right? So he doesn't need to be polite. The man who dominated the whole region through crushing victories, through laying siege for years at a time to your city while you all starve to death, that's who's talking to you. And he says, what? I want to talk to you about peace, he says. I want to multiply peace and security and calmness to you. That by itself, I think, should grab his listeners' attentions as this epistle is read to them. Verse 2 says, I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. Now, as readers of the whole book of Daniel, we can recognize a profound change in the king's attitude here, right? We've been seen behind the scenes. We see the rest of the book. We know what's been going on. Just a few verses ago in chapter 3, we heard Nebuchadnezzar speak absolutely blasphemous words at an incredibly blasphemous dedication service to his blasphemous image that he set up in defiance of God. And he suggested and said outright that there is no God anywhere, whether it's Babylonian or Hebrew or any other, that could possibly save you, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace. I'm more powerful than any God there is. And that's not because he was an atheist, it's because he believed he was more powerful than any god there was. He graded himself as stronger than any god. And now he's become a preacher for someone that he's calling the most high god. And so not only is the king acknowledging that this god he's talking about is above himself, which is a big deal on its own, 
But he is stating in clear terms that this God is above any God that any person in any nation or in any language could ever imagine. He's like, hey, I just want everybody everywhere to know I want to talk to you about the Most High God. Let me tell you about what he has done. More importantly, it says this Most High God has worked signs and wonders. Look at that for me. Two little words, but so important and pretty magnificent when you think about it. Read what he says there. I want to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. That's a remarkable thing. This is a personal God who is out to connect with Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king who wanted nothing to do with him. A pagan king who had gone and destroyed this God's temple and carried off his best and brightest subjects. A king who had blasphemed against this God. And he says, yeah, this God worked signs for me and wonders for me. A personal God. We've seen this in previous chapters. It's hard to believe or imagine, but God was after Nebuchadnezzar. And not after him to slay him, but to save him. If we're writing the movie script, we want God to send the angel to lop this guy's head off, right? Look at what he's done to the nation of Judah. Look at what he's done to Jerusalem. Look what he did to the young men of Israel. Look how he defies God. Look how he boasts of himself. Look how he blasphemes. Look how he challenges God. Everything that he does is a disgusting affront to godliness. And so we say, yeah, send Iron Man to go wipe this guy out. Send Michael the archangel to go deal with this guy. Open up the earth, God, and let fire just devour this guy wholesale. But no, we see that the God of the Bible was after Nebuchadnezzar for the opposite, to save him, to pull him out of his sin and to rescue him from himself. The Lord sent a variety of signs and servants and situations to this man, Nebuchadnezzar, reaching out to him again and again and again. And that's what the Lord does. He did it for you. He did it for me. He's a God of love who cares for his own enemies. Think for a minute. Don't need to dwell on it too much. But who do you think, in your knowledge, is the worst person in all the world right now? Don't say it out loud. <laughs> you, you know, or, or who's one of the worst, most despicable people, you know, in your life or in the world? And God says, yeah, I, I love that person. I love that person so much. I sent my son to die for that person. Jesus Christ laid down his life knowing who that person was and what they would do. He says, I laid down my life and now I work again and again and again to try to reveal to that person so that they can be saved. And what a great message of the Bible. A man like Nebuchadnezzar, a man like Saul of Tarsus, they can be saved. When you really think about what kind of a person Paul was before he was Paul, a murderer, a hater of Jesus, he was like a terrorist. I mean, he, he made it his life's work to go around butchering Christians and imprisoning them and destroying the church. That's what his life was. And, and the Lord says, yeah, that's the very guy. Let's spend a bunch of time working on this guy. Let, let's, let's do whatever we can to save this man from himself and from an eternity, an eternity separated from me. And so this is what the Lord does. God loves the worst person on earth and he wants to save them and he wants to work in your and my life to to demonstrate that he wants to save them. The gospel is for that person as much as it is for you and for me. 
Nebuchadnezzar says here in verse 2, I think everyone needs to know this story. And here we see a little bit of the character of a believer. If we believe the gospel, that God has saved us from our sins, that he loves us, that he has intentions for us, and that he has power for living, uh, that he's granted us access into eternity in heaven, if we believe the things that the Bible says, well, that's something that people need to hear about. It's the greatest story ever told. Once when Paul was preaching, he said, we declare to you glad tidings. This isn't bad news, this is good news. Here's what God has done, Paul said. He said, here's how he raised Jesus from the dead. Here's how you can believe and be justified and be forgiven of your sins. These are glad tidings. This is good news. Everybody everywhere needs to hear this stuff. Now the world culture around us, it's not just America. I mean, it's all of human history, but the world culture around us... They really want us to keep religion to ourselves, right? That's fine if you're a Christian. We don't really experience outright persecution much in the United States. Thankful for that. What we experience a little bit more is the, the pressure of the culture to say, hey, that's great for you. Just keep it to yourself. I don't need to hear about your Jesus stuff. I'm not going to stone you. We're not going to behead you. We're not going to do anything like that. But don't talk to me about that. I believe what I believe. You believe what you believe. It's all fine for everything. And so it can be hard for us to speak about the Lord, but we should remind ourselves that, you know what, this Jesus stuff is good news. It's a story that needs to be told everywhere. I guess they just had that big lottery, right? It was like a billion dollars or something. Yeah, follow up on that dude in about 10 years and see, see how he's doing. But if, if, if you had won the lottery somehow, you didn't even realize you played, but somebody, you somehow won the lottery... That's news you want to hear, right? And somebody else knew about it and said, hey, you know, you won the lottery. I saw your face was on there, you know, on the TV. I didn't know that. That's something you want to know about. Don't talk to me about your lottery. Keep that to yourself. That's a silly thing, but like, this is good news. This is glad tidings. And this is a story that everybody, everywhere, every nation, every language, every place needs to hear about. Verse 3. Nebuchadnezzar pauses and says, How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion is from generation to generation. Sounds like a real believer to me. He's barely getting started on his epistle here, and he breaks into a spontaneous song of praise. Think about the change in this man's heart here. Worship's a sign of a changed life. You know, in this book, we get a few glimpses into the thought process of the king. Usually, when he's not blinded with rage, he's just thinking about himself. Nebuchadnezzar was defined by pride and by arrogance, by self-importance. He was all about his own greatness. It's what God ultimately judges him for. But now, as we get a glimpse into his mind, we see a man thinking about God, and just thinking about God made him burst into praise. The warrior king suddenly became a poet, and this stuff just started coming out, praising the Lord. And he says, man, this is a great God, a wonder-working God, a personal God, a God who cares about the affairs of this world. A song of praise. Verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. So this is the condition of the person that's talking, his testimony, the condition of the man who needed to be saved. This is the before picture for this guy. And what we notice here is that it's not just people at rock bottom who need Jesus, right? It's not just the folks in the gutter who need Jesus. 
This was perhaps the wealthiest, most powerful man in all the world, on the planet at the time. There's all this stuff in the news, who's the richest man in the world, and it's Jeff Bezos, and now it's this guy, and they jockey back and forth. I think it is Mr. Amazon right now. But people seem to care about that sort of thing. But you know what? It's not just the guy in the gutter who needs the gospel. It's the wealthiest, most powerful man in all the world. Because we see that Nebuchadnezzar was absolutely lost and bankrupt when it came to what really mattered, when it came to his eternity and his spiritual life. You see, all he had, all his power, all his wealth, all of his position or whatever, he didn't have hardly one night's peace of, you know, like he couldn't sleep ever. He's tormented all the time. He's insane. He's a madman. He's got all this stuff going on. And yet, even though from his perspective here, he's, I'm flourishing, I'm at rest. Yeah, but you're going crazy. All the time, you can't get your sleep. You're worried about this. You're paranoid. You've got all this stuff going on. He was living the good life. He had it all, but coming down the pike was a crisis that he certainly couldn't foresee. Luckily, God loves the rich and the poor. He doesn't send his gospel to only certain socioeconomic brackets and exclude the others. He sends it to everyone. Verse 5, I saw a dream which made me afraid, and the thoughts on my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Therefore, I issued a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me that they might make it known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers came in, and I told them the dream, but they did not make known to me its interpretation. It had been many years since his dream of the image with the head of gold in chapter 2. Once again, the Chaldean con men were unable to give him any help. One of the great contrasts of this book, I think, is how when the unbeliever is in crisis, they go to people who can't give them any real answers, right? Uh, They're spinning around looking for help and needing uh, assistance, and they don't find it until they turn to someone who knows the Lord. And then these so-called experts, magicians, soothsayers, none of them had any help for Nebuchadnezzar. Then what good are you? This is your job. You had one job to do, soothsayers, and you can't do it today. But then you see God's people in the book contrasted. When they're in times of crisis, and we're in this book, real life and death crisis, they go to the Lord who reveals the truth to them. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't consult doctors or legal advice or those sorts of things. That's, of course, not what I'm suggesting. Now, you say, well... I don't know what's going on with my health, but I only go to God. I don't go to doctors. That's not what we're saying at all. But we should have confidence as believers that we serve a God who speaks and directs and gives wisdom to us, especially in a time of crisis, especially when something's happening in our lives that is uh, significant or is an opportunity for God to work or something that we don't know what to do. Well, we serve a God who reveals and a God who directs and guides and gives insight. Why didn't the king go immediately to Daniel? Well, we don't know exactly. Maybe at this point it was a little below Daniel's pay grade. He's effectively running the empire at this point. Nebuchadnezzar's at rest in his palace after all. Maybe Daniel is away on business. We're not sure. Maybe Nebuchadnezzar thought, you know, the last time I had a dream like this, Daniel said it was about me. And I really don't want this dream I had to be about me because it, it was a particularly bad dream. The last dream was, you know, if you had it, you would have thought, he, he said he was really bothered him. He didn't know why, though. He didn't understand. He was just disturbed and troubled by it. But this one, he's like, yeah, I'm not sure this one is going to be about me. I don't want it to be. We're not sure why he didn't go to Daniel right away, but when these other guys failed, Daniel steps into the room. Verse 8, 
But at last, Daniel came before me. His name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. In him is the spirit of the holy God. And I told the dream before him, saying, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you and no secret troubles you, explain to me the visions of my dream that I have seen and its interpretation. So the question is, if Nebuchadnezzar had truly converted, why does he say here, his name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God? Ah, some of the commentators say. Well, I'd suggest that we need to remember that this is a message he's sending throughout his empire. The recipients would understand the original language in a way that we don't. So when they heard Daniel's Babylonian name, they would have thought, oh, it's this guy he's talking about as a servant of Bel the Babylonian God, because that's what his name means. Bel to Shazar means I'm effectively like a prince of Bel. I'm a servant of Bel, this pagan Babylonian God. In fact, what do we see? We see Nebuchadnezzar taking the time to make a distinction. He says, listen, I know this guy has a pagan name, Belteshazzar. You've probably heard about him because his name's on the letterhead, right? He's running the empire. I know he has that weird name, but in reality, this man serves a different God. He serves the holy God. And so I see Nebuchadnezzar making a distinction here. You know, some names just have baggage attached to them, right? Uh, That's why no one is named Adolf or Judas here tonight. Because some names mean something. And I'm sure every culture and every era has certain names where it's like, ooh, I know what that means. Or, for example, in a different way. When someone changes their name in the public view and changes their name to, for example, Mohammed, that usually means something, right? We can make some pretty strong guesses about other things in their lives and about who they are and their ideology, or at least some of it, based upon that change of their name. And so Nebuchadnezzar is saying, hey, Belteshazzar, but wait. I know he has this name, but his, his first name is Daniel. His real name is Daniel, and he's a servant of the holy God. So he makes a distinction. I don't see a problem here. What Nebuchadnezzar points out twice, and will again in verse 18, is that within Daniel is the spirit of the holy God. This is the character of a converted man or woman. If you're a believer, if you've been born again, the spirit of the holy God is in you. And we would add that he is in you in a way that even Daniel did not enjoy. Daniel, one of our great heroes of the faith, we love him, he inspires us, we look up to him, and if Daniel could be here right now, he would say, man, you guys are the ones that have it good. You have the indwelling Holy Spirit in a way I didn't have the indwelling Holy Spirit, Uh, a special promise from the Lord. And so uh, the Spirit is sent not only as a guarantee of our inheritance in heaven, but he's also sent as the helper to do great things in and through your life. And so already we see that a converted individual is characterized by worship, by preaching of what God has done, and by the Holy Spirit indwelling them. So pretty good epistle so far. Let's get into the dream. Verse 10. These were the visions of my head while on my bed. I was looking, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth. Its height was great. And the tree grew and became strong. Its height reached to the heavens, and it could be seen to the ends of all the earth. Its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant. And in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens dwelt in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. The tree is a symbol of Nebuchadnezzar himself. Daniel says so outright in verse 22. Interesting, from the king's perspective, he says, hey, here's what I saw. From the king's perspective, his life was just just great and good. Look at how wonderful I am. 
I'm a great big lovely tree. Look how I shade people. Look how I feed people. Look how much everybody wants to be around me. Just being near my trunk. Oh, it's so fun to be around Nebuchadnezzar. Something tells me that the autobiography of Nebuchadnezzar would be a lot different than the biography of Nebuchadnezzar written by somebody else. Here's what really happened. Some of those beasts were getting pulled apart in public parties of executions. Here's some of those people were being burned alive and their families and their homes were being turned into dung heaps and things like that. You know, though, while he's looking at himself as this great, big, loving, cuddly tree, we know that before his conversion, he was a brutal tyrant, a murderer, a man who caused immeasurable suffering in pursuit of his own power. But, you know, in reality, there are a lot of people in this sort of mental condition, especially in a culture like ours. You know, you want to talk to a family member or a neighbor or a friend, somebody who you're like, man, that person needs Jesus. They're not a believer. I want to share with them about Jesus. I need to share with them about sin and forgiveness and how the Lord wants to save them. And in the meantime, they're thinking, I'm pretty great. I haven't really done anything. I'm not Charles Manson. I'm not Nebuchadnezzar. I've got nothing to apologize for. You should thank me for how great I am. What do I need salvation from? And Nebuchadnezzar, he seems to see his tree that sort of way. But then we see the tree from heaven's perspective in verse 13. I saw in the visions of my head while on my bed, there was a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven. He cried aloud and said this, chop down the tree, cut off its branches, strip off its leaves, scatter its fruit. Let the beasts get out from under it and the birds from its branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump and roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven and let him graze with the beasts on the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from that of a man. Let him be given the heart of a beast and let seven times pass over him. This decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever he will and sets over it the lowest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. In the coming weeks, we'll see the interpretation and the fulfillment of all this. Pretty remarkable. But for now, here's what we know. And this tree, as great as it seemed from the earthly perspective, was suddenly judged. There was no warning. Just bam, all of a sudden, this messenger from heaven comes down and says, All right, chop it down. Knock this thing over. Hey, beasts and birds, for your own sake, get out from under this thing. We're going to strip it bare. Uh, and, and here's what we note. The tree is great as it seemed. It wasn't judged with a scolding or with a controlled burn that might leave a mark or two on its bark and then pass on by. No, heaven was going to lay waste to this tree. Chop it down, cut off the branches, strip the leaves, scatter the fruit. And what could the tree say or do to defend itself? Nothing at all. Uh, it was hopeless and helpless before the power of heaven. But then we also see that in wrath, God remembers mercy. Though the tree would be decimated, it would not be fully uprooted. There would still be hope for that stump. And after an extended time, there would be another chance for this man. And praise God, we'll see that by the end he took the chance. He did not waste God's mercy this time, but turned from his sin to the Lord. We're gonna, I'm jumping ahead here, but Daniel's going to say to him, he's like, hey man, this is about you. Turn from your sin and repent. Well, he doesn't, and these judgments fall on him. And then finally, after all of this is carried out, Nebuchadnezzar repents and turns to the Lord. 
It's an interesting statement there in verse 17. The heavenly creature says that God sets the lowest of men in power. That was heaven's assessment of this most mighty king. We think of some of the people who have been world leaders. Think of the people who in even modern history have been world leaders. Most of them are nut job weirdos, right? Most of them, a lot of them are genocidal maniacs, right? Start thinking about just from the 20th century forward, the people who are in charge of countries or in charge of regions and uh, not, not a good-looking group on average when you think about the kinds of things that people did. When you start thinking about men like Stalin and Mussolini and uh, Ceausescu and Mao and all of these different people, these are people leading uh, the governments of history. The Bible speaks the truth Now, it's election time. There are a lot of candidates and issues and decisions that need to be made. Let's remember what the Lord has said. It's that righteousness exalts a nation. And so our hope is not in princes or in presidents or in anything like that. Our hope's in the Lord. And so vote, be involved, and be used by God in whatever way he directs you to. Hey, if God tells you you need to run for public office, then you do that. But let's not assume that some man or some woman in an office is going to fix the world. Uh, In many cases, as we see here, the lowest of men are found in those offices. And so we just want to be careful and remember that it's righteousness, it's godliness that is our aim. And we need to interact with our wonderful democracy uh, accordingly. A person who needs conversion is in a terrible condition. They're just moments away from judgment and they may not even realize it. Who knows how long each of us have. But these individuals who don't believe, they may think they're the general Sherman of their community, the great, wonderful tree that everybody wants to visit. But heaven's standard is absolute. And looking down on an unconverted life, heaven says, yeah, that that tree is ripe for judgment. And it's only by God's mercy that you're not judged immediately. And God has been sending you the gospel again and again and again, and you've been rejecting it. And eventually judgment comes. Those who don't believe desperately need salvation and forgiveness of their sins. And luckily there's a God who actively pursues them and tries over and over to reveal himself so that they might be saved. Once they believe, their lives are forever changed. Blasphemers no longer blaspheme. Now they preach, just like Nebuchadnezzar. Killers no longer kill. Now they give peace, like we see Nebuchadnezzar doing here. The proud no longer boast in themselves, but they boast in the Lord, like we see Nebuchadnezzar doing here. And then those believers are characterized by worship and evangelism and having a spirit-filled life. And because of that, they are able to do things unbelievers cannot do. They can share real truth and give real insight, be used to change other people's lives. This is a great start to a little epistle here in the book of Daniel. But as we close, I'd like us to give attention to two little terms that are brought up out of this text. First of all, pay attention to the phrase there in verse 17, let seven times pass over him. Uh, This way of describing time is significant. Scholars generally accept this as referring to seven years. And this terminology is not only going to come up later in uh, chapter 7 and 12 of Daniel, but it's also found in Revelation 12. It's a very important piece of terminology when it comes to Bible prophecy. In those cases, it refers to a portion of the tribulation, chapter 7 of Daniel, chapter 12 of Daniel, chapter 12 of Revelation. You've probably heard the phrase before, time, times, and half a time. 
It refers to a specific, literal, three-and-a-half-year period before the second coming of Christ to the earth. It's also outlined as 42 months and elsewhere as 1,260 days. And so it's clearly meant to be understood as a literal period of time. And when we approach Bible prophecy, uh, we believe it says what it means. It means what it says, that it is speaking. Uh, we interpret it from a literal futurist position. And so uh, when we see times here, it's speaking about years. The second term to notice is there in verses 13 and 17. Who are the watchers? Now, we're quick to say, oh, well, an angel came down from heaven. And certainly this is some sort of angelic being, but don't move too quickly off of what we see here and what we're learning here. We see that in this case, they are described twice as being holy. We also notice that they are able to decide and decree things. That's pretty interesting. Verse 17 does not say that God decreed the tree be cut down. It says that it was the decision of the watchers themselves as a group, that they had passed judgment on Nebuchadnezzar as a group and that he was being sentenced as a criminal. This is really interesting. This isn't usually what we see angels doing, right? This group, represented by this one watcher among a group of what Daniel calls watchers, they decided to act so that the world would know that the Most High God rules. Dr. J. Vernon McGee describes them this way. They are, quote, an order of created intelligences that God has. The watchers are the holy ones that administer the affairs of this world. They see all, hear all, tell all. Dr. Michael Heiser writes extensively on this topic. He identifies the watchers as members of what are known as the divine council. You read about them in Psalm 82. Psalm 82 verse 1 says this, God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods he holds judgment. Here's what Dr. Heiser says about the divine council. The term divine council is used by Hebrew and Semitic scholars to refer to the heavenly host, the pantheon of divine beings who administer the affairs of the cosmos. Now, why bring this up? We don't have time to flesh all this down. There's like books written upon this kind of stuff. Well, mostly I just want us to not be the kind of people who just breeze past what the text of the Bible really says. I have the tendency to like read what Nebuchadnezzar is writing here and just think, okay, an angel came down. They get to the next part. Get to that part where you become like an animal, Nebuchadnezzar. That's cool. And in the meantime, we're seeing something very unique and something very interesting and something very different than we usually think about what we identify as an angel. It's an angelic being. Well, what kind of an angelic being is it? We kind of have an understanding that there's a hierarchy of angels. We know Michael is an archangel. and you know We have a certain understanding of that. It seems the demons have uh, a hierarchy uh, of, in their organization and things like that. But in general, I, I'll say this to myself, and maybe you'll uh, you know, take something from it as well, but in general, we need to slow down and, and read as deeply as we can into what's being said so that we don't potentially miss really significant things the Bible's trying to tell us. You know, in this case, Daniel declares that there's a group of heavenly beings called the Watchers. They're a group. What exactly they are, we're not sure. How many there are, we're not sure. There's a lot of study we can do on something that's really easy for us to skim over. And so we want to be students who take care to listen. You see that in the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar, right? God kept trying to speak to him and he kept missing a lot of things. Or even Daniel. Daniel, later at the end of this book, we're going to see Daniel saying to us as a very old man, he's like, oh, 
I finally realized something in the book of Jeremiah while I was reading it. He said the exile would last 70 years and that those 70 years were almost over. And that's like right at the end of his life. He's in his 90s. He's like, wow, I just read this. And so we see that the word of God is alive. It's powerful. It's speaking to us. And I'm just saying to myself, let's read a little slower and not skim past because all of a sudden there's something here and you think, what is that about? What is that connected to? What does that have to do with these other passages that you know we know about angels or divine beings or those sorts of things? So let's take care to read deeply, pay attention as much as we can to this wonderful, life-changing message from our tender, loving, powerful, personal God. Amen?